quite special this morning. Tyler prayed for me as an elder and also me as a medical worker, so bonus points. Thank you. Uh, so those who don't know me, my name is Dustin. I am one of our lay elders here. I've been here for living in Santa Cruz for about five years, but here at this church for about two or three now. And yeah, I have the awesome opportunity to lead us with a sermon. Um, this morning, um, kind of in picking a sermon and going through this whole last year as Drew and Tyler have just done an incredible job bringing us through who is Jesus. We've looked through Mark, we've looked through Colossians, and it's been awesome. Also, at the same time, we've also had a pretty tough year, right? Like, all sorts of crazy stuff going on. I wanted to pick a passage that maybe could give us encouragement as a church, keep our focus on Christ, keep our hope set on Him. So this morning, as we go through that, we're going to go through Philippians 2, 1 through 11, one of my favorite texts in the Bible. And if you have your pew Bibles with you, it's, uh, I believe it's on page 980. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So now, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What a remarkable text, right? Yes. So going through that, there's so much to unpack. I think my, my goal this morning isn't just to go through every little detail of that. It would be just way too much. But rather, if we could paint some broad strokes around the text. So a few points that we'll be talking through. Being encouraged in our Christian walks. Transform minds we need and how to follow Christ's perfect example. So, point one, be encouraged in your Christian walk. So, we need to do just a little work to put some context to this. It's a bit difficult, it's unusual for us to just pick up two chapters in. Normally we're going exegetical verse by verse through chapters, but this morning I'll do just a little bit of work to maybe shed some light on this passage as we consider these points. So, if we were to rewind just... A chapter back in Philippians, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 12, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. We ask, what happened to Paul? Well, he'd been out proclaiming the gospel, Jesus is Lord, right? He gets in prison, the text says. Again, in fact, this story takes place first in Acts 16, which Matt read for us this morning. Paul, Silas, originally reach a woman named Lydia with the gospel. The two of them later get beaten and thrown in jail after they exercise a demon out of a fortune-telling girl that the man who was profiting off of her didn't like. The whole town goes crazy, throws them in jail. After some wild events, which we read about, Paul then converts the jailer who was overseeing him and his whole household, in fact. Pretty amazing story, right? Those guys then likely became the integral part of this church body that Paul's now writing to. Fast forward, Paul is now writing from a distance that the gospel he brought to them is now advancing. But his preaching of it, his boldness, resulted in what? More persecution, more imprisonment. Paul wants them in this context to be an encouraged people. We see this theme actually start up in Acts 16.40 from this trip. Acts 16.40, it reads, They went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brother, they encouraged them, and then they departed. So, staying encouraged as a church body is a essential theme of Philippians. The all churches alike will face hard times. So if we were to draw an analogy here, imagine Drew travels across the country, this weird, strange land of Oklahoma, right? <laughs> Lands in Santa Cruz, not the most Christian area, but it's spiritual. Slowly starts reaching people with the gospel, doing Bible studies in his house. Gets a church going on its feet, Santa Cruz Baptist, right? Awesome place for all of them. One day, it's at a Christmas tree giveaway. This crazy Oklahoman surfing preacher guy <laughs> keeps sharing the gospel and people don't like it. Hate speech, they call it. They get offended. What if they threw him in jail? That's kind of extreme, but what if, what if they did? Think about it for a moment. What would happen to us? How would we feel as a people? And we'd probably be a mess, right? Maybe start doing everything in our power to make this wrong, right? Maybe start posting all over social media. Be grieved, I would imagine. Some of us even question, what are we doing here? Maybe stop meeting, stop coming all together. Is the gospel really worth it, you know? Then, Drew writes be encouraged. What's happening is actually for good. For good? What? What are you talking about, Drew? Now, this is like just mild parallel of what Paul's circumstances really were, but maybe just kind of seeing it through that lens can help us see this text and this chapter with a little more light to it. So, how can chapter 1 of Philippians, littered with hard statements, keep us hopeful? Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ to die as gain. Verse 29, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. How do we read that and feel encouraged? So we answer that, we think Paul was the only one to share this paradox. Listen to Jesus in John 16. This section, he's soon going to be leaving the disciples He's coming up to the days where he's about to die. And this is what he tells him, John 16, 32. Behold, the hour is coming. 
Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered and be on your own, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And I'm not alone. The Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, he says. Another way of saying, be encouraged, take heart. Why? I have overcome the world, he says. So there it is. How can we be encouraged while facing hardships, hard years? We take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. You know, and this is what Paul's getting at and stating in verse 1 of our text. If there's any encouragement in Christ, he's telling us there's nothing in this world, nothing we're facing physically, emotionally, circumstantially, spiritually maybe, that Jesus hasn't overcome or something that he will not redeem us from. I want us to just notice here for a minute, it's not just like a nice sentiment though, it's actually like commanded in scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always, right? Let's actively obey Jesus and not lose hope. We don't just give up when things get hard. So, do you find yourself discouraged? Something like I honestly like struggle with, I get discouraged easily. It's often sometimes just my lack of faith. How can I have been a Christian for so long, yet I feel like I've grown so little? Why is it hard to sometimes obey just basic Christian commands? Why is it hard to get out of my comfort zone? Why is it hard to be a good witness to my friends and coworkers? About thinking through the world we live in, why don't people respond to such a good gospel? Why does Christianity just come off so offensive to everyone? People won't like me if I share the truth. Why do I so badly want to be liked? And it's so easy to get discouraged in our walk. And that's not even talking about life hardships that compound it, right? Job loss, money, injury, stress, health issues. The list, it's long. So how do we and can we and must we be encouraged as we jump into the text more? While the grand answer is keeping our attention and gaze at Jesus, which we'll get into later in our text, I think there lies another key in the passage we're looking at. So read it again with me, Philippians 2, 1 through 3. If there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, If we can draw our encouragement from Christ, if you've experienced the Christian virtues mentioned above, comfort, affection, sympathy, participation in the Spirit, directions are set out. If you meet that criteria then, complete Paul's joy. By what? What's the secret? Christian unity. Same mind, same love, same goal. Do nothing, it says, from selfish ambition. In humility, count others more significant than you. That all implies us being in a local community of believers doing this together. Not not just Sunday church attendance, but living life together as believers. So if we could take the gaze off of ourselves 
my hardship, my problem, my failure, my insignificance, my whatever it is, fill in the blank. Replace that attention knowing that Christ, he's redeemed us from those failures. We can shift our focus onto others and encourage one another to maintain this. It's all about Christ and it's all about others. Think about the greatest two commandments in the scripture. What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's not love yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, you know, a lot of us are really good at that, and it doesn't breed those results. You know, it's the opposite message of what most of modern music, pop culture, psychology teaches. If any of you are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the goal is to reach self-actualization. In other words, living up to your full potential. You gotta have all your own personal needs met to actually live to your potential. That's not the message we see here, though. The people who experience the most joy in this life, the joy Paul had, in prison, in chains, broken, poor, are the ones who, in trusting, serving Christ, give themselves to others. I want us to also note that the source of Paul's joy here, why is Paul's joy being made complete? It's seeing his fellow Christians maintain their hope in Christ, live out these gospel imperatives. Think about that. To seeing other believers flourish in their walks bring you joy. Is that a mainstay for you to draw joy from? Should be, right? So, back to the main key point there and staying encouraged, people, we must get over ourselves. But how do we be practical in applying this? It's difficult. Like I said, I struggle with it. I honestly do. How so? It's a feeling, right? It's an emotion. I can't just feel encouraged all the time. It's like out of my control, seemingly. What I'm going to argue, though, however, is that it's not just a feeling, but it's a posture we have. The call isn't just feel encouraged. It says be encouraged. Some people just have this as a natural gift. You know, my dad, for example, he's like the most encouraging guy I know. It's like every time I'm with him, Dustin, I love you. Son, you're so great. You did such a good job. If he was here right now after the sermon, he'd probably tell me how awesome it was. <laughs> it's his gift. He's always reminding me of biblical truths. He doesn't just do it with me. He does it with everyone. It's like his gift. You know, some of us have this just natural quality to give to others, and some of us don't. Some of us need it more on our radar to do, right? We have to maintain a posture, though, of this encouragement. And how do we maintain that? Let's go back to the text. Listen again. In humility, in counting others more significant than yourselves, looking to the interests of others, we must be around one another applying this. If we're a community, a membership of believers, do this with one another together. It's one of the reasons why here we take membership so seriously. I think Drew and Tyler bring it up like five times a sermon. <laughs> why is it so helpful though? It's, you know, one thing we emphasize so much is as we do it, we maintain this posture. As a membership of committed believers, in a posture of gospel gratitude, continue to encourage and point one another to Christ. We gotta be around other believers that do this. Now, I don't, I don't really wanna be mistaken here. I'm not saying 
that encouragement is just us all hanging out and making each other feel good. You know, we have to be specific on this. We remind one another of truth. We remind one another not to lose hope when things are hard. That's why Paul and Silas, on their first journey, when they get thrown in jail and prison, what were they found doing? Acts 16.25, praying, singing psalms and hymns to one another. Prayer, worship, reminders of truth. You know, it doesn't do anyone any good in a hardship they're experiencing just to say something nice to them. Imagine me telling Brooke, my wife, she's in labor with our daughter, Avery. Honey, you pull off that hospital gown so well while she's <laughs> suffering. <laughs> you're over there laboring, brutal pain. Just, you're all so awesome. I love you. It'd be kind of ridiculous and silly, right? They might be good and nice things to say, but consider the context. She needs to be reminded of the real truth. The baby's coming. There's a light at the end of this suffering, right? So as Paul over and over pleads for Christian unity in this chapter, I hope you see it. Our encouragement is the byproduct of looking to Christ, self-forgetfulness, and giving ourselves to one another. When we all do it together as believers, it works. So in being practical, do this today. Find a brother or sister who's been in your heart. Encourage them. Tell them of fruit you've seen in your life. Write a note. Write a text. Ask how you can be praying for them. Share a hymn. Share a song with them. Go do something you know they would enjoy. Look to the interests of others, the text says, right? In short, it might not seem like much. It's just this little small stuff. But a lifestyle that's marked by that sort of action will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Moving on here. Point two, it starts with a new mind. So as we were reading, so I was reading through this section, one thing that really just stood out to me in a long list of verses is how Paul tells us three times to have a particular type of mind. Verse two. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind, have this mind, verse 4, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what's he getting at here? Is he talking just information, data, knowledge, intellectual assent? Say, yes, we need those things. Information is good. We need gospel particulars. We need to be able to share what we mean when we speak of anything that's theological. We need that information, yes, but I think that's what he's talking about here. He's not just talking data. He's talking about how we need a whole new perspective on life. You know, the lens we look through and interpret reality around us needs to actually be changed. Our minds are just as in need of change as our hearts, which are so prone to discouragement, right? They're connected. The mind, it's such a stunning thing God's created for us. We come up with all sorts of stuff, right? People have invented amazing things. Phones, gadgets, Teslas, iPads, all products of the human mind and will and life. But our minds, apart from God's saving grace, are still fallen. Our, our minds lead us into crazy actions, Right? I think I need to like labor that point to convince you of that. We can just turn on the news. 
Our minds need to be changed and redeemed. It's part of our sanctification. In the same way God gives us new hearts, new desires. We're not just transformed the moment we become Christians, right? We see this language clearly, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed, Paul says. Say more frankly, don't even begin to think that by your own power, your knowledge, you have the ability to discern and act in a way that's pleasing to God. It's an arrogant position. We can't find ourselves in that, thinking we can do it on our own. I have the power. I have the strength. I have the ability. All American ideology, right? We're trained to think that way. It's our natural bent. It's worldliness. And we've got to be stripped away from that. So as a starting point, we need to ask God to give us new minds. One is to think process correctly to then act correctly. And, you know, we need God's word to do this, right? You know, one thing I think, though, is often even our approach to scripture when we're reading scripture reveals the need for our minds to still be changed. You ever find yourself just like in the word, your time, and you're just like finding problems with the text, not getting fruit from it, maybe just murmuring about, you know, the way you think it should be written or just not getting anything from it, the way you think maybe something should be or an inconsistency you can't reconcile in the text. Maybe you can't trust a God that would do, fill in the blank in whatever Old Testament text you're looking at. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we just simply take everything we read in the Bible at face value You know, that would lead down some crazy roads. You know, we wrestle with scripture. That's okay. But a primarily skeptical posture reveals a mind that's still just mixed in worldliness, not allowing or pursuing God to transform us. Listen to A.W. Tozer on this. Let a man question the inspiration of scripture and a curious, even monstrous inversion takes place. Thereafter, he judges the word instead of letting the word judge him. He determines what the word should teach instead of permitting it to determine what he should believe. He edits, he amends, he strikes out, adds at his pleasure, but always he sits above the word and makes it amenable to him instead of kneeling before God and becoming amenable to the word. Ouch! And so they're saying is we can't put ourselves above the scripture to meet the criteria of how our worldly minds just naturally think. We're the ones that need to be changed. You and I, are, we're not God. We don't have the, the say and the oughts of how human existence should be. This is God's world, Psalm 2, which he read for us this morning. There's no election. There's no vote taking place. So when we allow God's word to instead judge us, it becomes the means to transform us and for the better, right? Making us more gentle, loving, caring, thoughtful, fruitful people, people like Jesus. And we all need this and we need God's tools to make it happen. Our job, your and I's job 
as followers, disciples of Christ, is we discipline ourselves, put ourselves in positions to let this happen. We pray for it. We dive into scripture, memorize it, meditate on it. Men's cohort right now, reading Don, Don Whitney, Spiritual Disciplines. He says, meditation on scripture is letting the Bible brew your brain. We need to let it critique us. And then be with believers who work at it. Back to that original point. The text says, being of the same mind, same love, in full accord, and of one mind, and having this mind among yourselves, together, he's calling for the church together to have an agreeable cooperative spirit. You know, we're all likely going to disagree on things, right? Not all have the same interests, not all be besties or just get along naturally. Different political views. Maybe views on masks, vaccines, Jake. <laughs> Whatever other ter- current topic we can bring up, we have to get over all of that. Christian unity comes from having the same goals, seeing Christ glorified, advancing his kingdom, letting his will be done, not our will. Letting him use other imperfect Christians like you and me to sharpen one another. Be with believers, love one another, be of the same mind, the mind of Christ. But what, what, what specifically does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Well, if we keep going into the text, that brings us to point three. Following Christ's perfect example. So, picking up verse five, one of my favorite texts in all scripture, Paul's hymn of Christ, it's been called, reads this. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a Christ. And Christ sets the perfect example of how we ought to live. I'm guessing probably most of us here have heard it written that pride is the greatest sin. Augustine Pendant, pride is the essence of sin. Luther, pride is the head and the life and the very nature of all sin. C.S. Lewis, pride is the greatest sin. If we spent time thinking about it, all of our failings are rooted in our pride. How so? Well, when we decide to go our way, my way is best, we essentially say with our actions that we don't believe God enough to take him at his word. We know better. We're superior to God's authority. Prideful heart doesn't obey because it thinks it knows better. Think about it. Hate, lust, Jealousy, complaining, fear, discontentment, envy, all forms of saying, I know and I want better for myself than what God's given me. I don't need to obey. I don't need to be content in my circumstances. Think back to Tozer's quote on the scripture. When we place ourselves above scripture, it's a, it's a byproduct of pride. So follow me here. If pride is the greatest of sins, then the greatest virtue 
What we should all aspire to should be the very opposite of that, right? And what's that? It's humility. This is at the heart of Christ's perfect example we just read. And it's what ought to encourage and fuel us in our Christian walk. Christ was humble. He didn't count equality a pretty important thing right now in today's climate. He didn't count it a thing to be even grasped. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross for you and for me, and we don't deserve that, right? So, the most powerful, wonderful being in all the universe, in spite of existing in absolute perfect harmonious, sinless, wonderful relationship and eternity past with the Father, didn't choose to love himself. Instead, he became a servant, actually translated as a slave. The one who created the world, gave breath and life to people that would hate him, reject him, kill him, he became a slave for them. Perfect obedience. Keyword tied to humility, obedience. He didn't seek his will, but that of the Father, and he emptied himself. Emptied himself of everything he actually deserved and rightly possessed. How amazing is that? This is why the gospel is so great. It's why following Jesus is so great. He does what's just unexpected for us humans, you know? We don't think that way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on the lowest position possible in order to give us the highest position that we could be given. Position on our own, through our own means and our own strength, we just could never attain. So don't miss this. While Jesus was a servant to God, he also took on this servant position to serve people. Followed the greatest commandments we read earlier perfectly. Loved God. He loved others. Didn't choose to love himself. Look at the whole of Jesus' ministry that we've been going through as Drew and Tyler have been teaching us. Constantly serving and feeding people, healing people, doing everything for them. One of my favorite scenes in Scripture shows this in John 13. Jesus approaching the day of his death. He's with his disciples and it's supper time picks up a towel, puts it around his waist, gets on the floor, begins washing his disciples, dirty, disgusting feet. I absolutely hate feet, so I read that, and I'm like, <laughs> Figuratively, he teaches them one of the greatest lessons they needed to learn, that they needed to learn. They needed to be clean. They couldn't do it themselves. They needed a servant. They needed the greatest servant to walk the earth. And we must all see and realize this for our own lives and our own walk. You know, something God's been helping me personally see and realize more. And a lot of you who know me have known this for a while. I, I got to have this lung surgery. I actually was scheduled to have it earlier in uh, April, I think it was, or June. Got to have like a lobe taken out of my lung. It's like a scary, painful operation. I was planned to do it. I was coming up into the surgery and two days before it got canceled. But I remember the week going into that surgery, anticipating this like terrible thing I was going to have to go through, and I was kind of a mess. 
actually an understatement. I was a really big mess. I was irritable, being short with my family. I was kind of wanting to isolate. I was scared, not wanting to do it, afraid of complications. I was discouraged. And I read that text in John that we just read. Considering Christ in a more extreme position, the week before going into his known death, way more scary, not just this common operation. He didn't complain. He didn't, wasn't irritable. He didn't murmur against God's will along the way. He washed the feet of the men that would abandon him as he went to go die for them. He still served them in that context. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. We all, to some measure, underestimate just how in need of saving we actually are. But at the same time, same time also underestimate just how great a Savior Jesus really is. John 13, 1. And his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus embracing the biggest trial ever seen in the universe, served his people, and he loved them to the very end. And he will likewise love us, you and I, to the end. Whatever trial, whatever hardship we find ourselves in, it's the greatest model of humility, greatest encouragement for us to remind ourselves of one another as we all walk together as a church. Greatest example for our mind transformation that needs to take place. And if you don't know Jesus, consider him. Maybe you've just been sitting here going through motions. He who knew no sin became a slave, took on your sin so that you could be reconciled to God. Turn from that sin, believe in him. It's the best thing we can do. To the Christian, struggling, discouraged, not prioritizing Christian community, be encouraged by Christ. Look at these examples. Be with other believers you can be doing this together with regularly. Keep following. Keep looking at his perfect example. Deny yourself. As we close our time here this morning in Philippians, we'll end by finishing the hymn of Christ. A section that reminds us that although Jesus took on that lowly position, he didn't just remain there. But in becoming a curse for us, in conquering death, in securing our salvation, he's now been lifted to the state he deserves, right? He's not a king, but he's the king. It's not a Lord, he's the Lord. Amen. Worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all our adoration. Picking up in verse nine. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And may we all willingly come, confess, proclaim these truths. Here, now, whatever hardship we find ourselves in, even whatever good ship we find ourselves in, we do it here, now, and forevermore. Let's pray.